The following message is by a guest speaker at Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. Morning, Emmanuel. It's good to be back uh, worshiping with you all. Uh, if you look with me into your Bibles, if you have one, if you're not, you can look up here. We'll be looking at the book of Acts, chapter 14, verses 1 through 28. Acts 14, verses 1 through 28. And I'll read the text for us here. Hold on. Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews uh, with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derb, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking. And Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he, didn't, yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained uh, the people. Uh, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derb. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they, and when they appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. 
And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. And from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work they had, they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with, his, with the disciples. Shall we pray together and ask the Lord to use this time in his word to strengthen us? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the work of your gospel uh, and the ways that you speak to us. Thank you just even for um, the missionaries going out to China and just so glad to see what you're doing uh, and the work that you're involved with there. We pray that even as we look at the missionary work of Paul, Lord, encourage us and, and challenge us in ways of how we can be involved to be faithful to the gospel you have given to us, that we might proclaim it, share it uh, to others, that they might know uh, the saving knowledge and the life and the joy of being a child of God. We just thank you so much. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, one of the things I have a hard time trusting um, my oldest son with is uh, my iPad my iPad, because, you know, he's so young. He's six. He's now six. Um, and, you know, I'm afraid of a couple things. One, of course, that he's going to break it. You know, I have, I have the iPad Air 2. I, somehow I was able to upgrade my old one into a new one, and now I have the two, the Air, uh, iPad Air 2. And, you know, I always think he's going to break it. And two, I always think he might be, you know, I'm afraid he might go on, you know, like Netflix or just watch a cartoon or a show that his eyes are just not ready for. And so one of the things that I'm uh, continually trying to do is to um, help him value trust, the importance of trust. And so that when I trust him with something, um, our relationship deepens when he is faithful with what I trust him with. In this case, how he handles my sacred iPad. Um, so I always give him a couple of rules. One, when he was younger, I would say, hold the iPad with two hands all times. Two hands, you know, just don't want him to drop it. But now that he's a little bit older, I tell him, let me know when your show is done or if you're going to watch another show, okay? Let daddy know. And he'll look at me and he'll be like, okay, okay. And at the end, I always say, hey, I trust you, okay? I trust you. <laughs> and I realize when I say that, um, he really takes it seriously. Uh, he knows that, you know, I trust him with it. And because our relationship still means a lot to him, uh, he handles my iPad well. At least for now, right? He's six. I know when he gets older, it'll be much different. You know, people have told me. Uh, and, you know, I'm sure those of you older with kids, you can shed some wisdom on this young father. But at least for now, that's how it is. We're at a point at, here in the book of Acts where Jesus has entrusted the Apostle Paul uh, to, be, to faithfully handle the gospel because Christ has given this to him. And Christ is everything to Paul. And he's trying to be faithful with this call that Christ has given to him. He's been called to reach the Gentiles, to reach the ends of the earth with the gospel. But his call is not just limited to himself. 
I would say that it's a, it's a call for all of us who believe, that say that we are followers of Jesus. We, too, are also called to be his witnesses. And God has entrusted us with the gospel. And he's asked us, as Christians, to be faithful with it, reaching the ends of the earth and being witnesses of the gospel uh, be, and being faithful with this gospel message. The gospel is good news in its basic form. It's good news. It ought to be communicated. It's a message about Jesus and the work of the cross and him dying for our sin, being rising from the dead. And it must be communicated. It's a message that has to be communicated to the world. And because we, as believers, have been entrusted with this gospel, we must be faithful to preach it. We must be faithful to preach it. And from our text, we're going to learn three things that are involved to faithfully preach the gospel. Uh, and the first thing we learn here is that we must preach the gospel where God has placed us. We must preach the gospel where God has placed us. Um, this is at the tail end of what we call Paul's first missionary journey. And prior to this passage, the Jewish leaders, uh, the men and women and the elites of the city of Antioch, they forced Paul and Barnabas out of the city. And we're at a point where they're, we're in our text here, they're traveling to a handful of cities. They've been forced out of that city, and we find them, and Luke highlighting two cities in particular, in particular, the events that happened there. First is over here in Iconium, which is about 90 miles east of uh, Pisidian Antioch there. And then we also see the events here in Lystra, which is about 20 miles southwest uh, before they head to Derb. And Luke, he highlights you know, them going to these cities. But what we see here is that what, wherever they find themselves, Paul and Barnabas, they are always preaching the gospel. They are always preaching the gospel. We read after they evangelized in Iconium in verse 6, it says, They fled to Lystra and Derb, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding country, and there they continued to preach the gospel. Verse 21, it says, When they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, to Iconium, and to Antioch. Throughout this first missionary journey, it doesn't matter what context or what situation they're in. Paul and Barnabas are focused on one thing, on one thing. And that's preaching the gospel to the people they encounter. At this point, Paul and Barnabas are not trying to follow some grand plan, uh, grand master plan of how they're trying to evangelize. They, you know, we see here that they're just, they're fleeing, they're being persecuted. And so, um, you know, we, we, they have to flee to these cities because people are trying, are, are going after them for the message that they're preaching. But they don't see it as, you know, they, they, don't, they don't see it as, you know, oh, just what are we going to do? Where they're going, they embrace it as God's will. And there they're just like, well, this is where God wants us to preach the gospel. Even when it gets uncomfortable for them, uh, we see that they still preach the gospel. Look for me here in verses 2. Verse 2 and 3 says, But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. The Jews there, they spoke against all that Paul and Barnabas were saying. It says that they poisoned the minds of the gen these Gentiles, meaning they were getting the people in Iconium to think badly about Christians. And I don't know if you've ever, one, 
had anyone ever say something bad about you or, uh, you know, give you stink eye because of something they heard from another person? Um, not from you, but from someone else. You know, that's such a very uncomfortable situation when they start talking to you as if they know exactly what happened. But it always makes you feel like your back is against the wall. I think some of us either, when, we, when that happens, I know for me, it's just, I lose my temper. Like, what are, you, what are you talking about? You know, do you even know me? You know, you get into that stance because um, you're hearing, like, who would you hear this from? It's either we get, lose our temper or, you know, you just want to get out of that situation. It's so uncomfortable. But Paul and Barnabas took that as a sign to stay longer. As it says, they remained there for a long time. And they didn't try to defend themselves. They just continued to preach more boldly for the Lord, preach the truth about the gospel. And as it says here in verse 3, it says that as they were doing that, speaking boldly for the Lord, that it was God who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. In other words, as they were faithful to preach the gospel, the good news of what Jesus has done uh, for sinners on the cross, God supported them and empowered them through it. You know, as simple as this point is, I think we all need to remember that wherever God has placed us, wherever God has placed you, it may be where God wants you to preach the gospel. For many of us, that means the, the job that we are in, whether we like it or not, um, that's where God has connected you to people so that you can preach the gospel to them. Maybe for you, it's, uh, you know, just your neighbors, or maybe it's, you know, a gym that you have membership at, or maybe it's the parents of your kids' friends from school. I think that's the context uh, where Sarah and I find ourselves in, is build it to build relationships with uh, unbelievers. You know, Luke has just uh, finished his first year of kindergarten in the San Francisco public school system, and we were intentional to really get involved in the public school system there because it was one of our only avenues to really connect with unbelievers uh, in the city. And so throughout this past year, he's made a couple of really good friends at school, and it's really lent itself to develop these great relationships uh, with, uh, with the parents there. And none of these parents are, unbelie- are, are believing families. Uh, in SF, Christians are by far the minority, by far uh, this is like the recent stat in the, in the Barna group where um, this Barna group on, uh, on cities that are Bible-minded, meaning people that are reported to read the Bible regularly or weekly or, and, or believe in the principles of Scripture. SF is at the top uh, least Bible-minded cities in the nation. Other polls say we're around 5% Christian, uh, evangelical, uh, Protestant in the, in the, in the city. And so we've gotten to know these families out there uh, through Luke. And, you know, we be, we've become really great friends with them. This is uh, pictures of Luke, and this is his close friend out there that he's gotten to know. And, uh, you know, he, we, because he's in soccer now, too, so they, his teammates are his classmates, too. So there's a lot of continuity that we're able to have with these, with these parents. We're able to have, as you see there, a joint birthday party with one of his friends. Their birthday was right around the same time. And uh, just a great families that we're, we're getting to know that God is uh, giving us an avenue to uh, have a relationship with. We take care of their kids when they go on errands and things like that. But, you know, 
we've already also as well had to uh, have been able to have faith conversations with them. And it's been just a great opportunity that God has been giving us. And we're just reminded that God has placed us here. God has placed us here. And he's opening a door for these relationships, but in order for us to preach the gospel to them, to preach the gospel to them. Do you see where God has placed you as the field to preach the gospel? Because when we're faithful to preach the gospel, as we see here from Paul and Barnabas, God will support and empower us through it. He will. We must preach the gospel where God has placed us. Secondly, to faithfully preach the gospel, we must challenge the worldview of unbelievers with the gospel. We must challenge the worldview of unbelievers with the gospel. Luke's main focus in this chapter is in this episode where Paul and Barnabas uh, preach the gospel to the people in Lystra. Um, and it's following, you know, this, following the events that happened after the healing of this crippled man. And we read that as Paul uh, was speaking, he, you know, it was most likely in this local town square for most of the Roman cities had these open areas where you can be able to share your thoughts and preach. And as Paul was speaking, we read that this crippled man was listening. And Paul discerns that he had faith to be made. Whoa. He had faith. Heavy duty here. Uh, he had faith to be made well. And... Um, you know, it was maybe it was during his explanation of the resurrection that, you know, the, this crippled man had hope to maybe get well and, and be, be healed by Christ. We don't know. But trusting in God's leading, Paul, it says that Paul looks intently at him. And in a loud voice, he, say, he commands him, stand up on your feet. And, and he does. It, the, actually, the text says that he, he springs up. He leaps off the ground and he begins to walk. And from this incident, um, the crowd watching, as they, as they respond, and we actually, Luke invites us to exactly what their worldview of what they see happening in front of them, this miracle that they see happening. And when I use the word worldview here, I'm, it means, you know, a philosophy of life. It's the reality of how someone views the world. So look with me here, starting at uh, verse 11. Actually, I think over... And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. Where Paul is being used to demonstrate the resurrection power of Christ to heal, they saw something else. They saw something else. They saw this miracle as a sign that the Greek gods of Zeus and Hermes have come down to visit them. Actually, when you look at the Greek mythology, uh, this is one of the stories that you find in the poetry of Ovid, uh, in the writings of the Metamorphosis, uh, which was written in AD, 8 AD, the year 8. Um, it actually talks about this story about how the, the Greek gods, Zeus and Hermes, come down and visit and they come down in human form, and no one in the city actually, actually you know, shows them any hospitality except this one couple. This one couple shows them hospitality, and so they, they bring them into their home, and they have food and wine, and they make them food. And what they realize is happening is that the wine, for some reason, it's not running out. 
It's not running out at all. And they realize there's a miracle happening before them. And the Greek gods, you know, Zeus and Hermes, they reveal themselves. And they say, you know, we have come from, you know, from above to, to bless. And thank you, the only ones that have showed us hospitality. And because of that, we are going to bless you. We are going to bless you. But for everyone else in this whole region, we will destroy them. We will destroy them. And that's kind of the story uh, from, uh, in the Greek mythology here. And so for these Lystrans, if Zeus and Hermes have come down to visit them in human form, they need to respond. They need to respond with proper worship or else something might happen to them. This was their worldview. This is how they saw the events unfolding in front of them and how they interpreted what had just happened. They saw gods visiting them in human form. They had to worship them properly or else something bad might happen. And Paul and Barnabas have no clue what's going on. They have no clue because they don't know the Lyconian language. And so they don't know until what's happening until these, you know, they bring out oxen and they're about to sacrifice it before them. And so when they realize this, they, they don't know how to communicate. So they tear their robes, you know, they're tearing their robes and, you know, just trying to make them to stop out of, you know, just a sign of like horror and grief of what they see happening, that they're about to worship them as gods. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where you don't know what's going on, but when you find out what's actually happening, you freak out. <laughs> you freak out. I remember this uh, when I was on a, a trip uh, to Kenya back in 2001. I'm sure people that have been out there may have similar stories, but for me, um, I remember this incident at, the, you know, at an outhouse. Uh, you know, the rural villages, it's just, you know, they're basically... If you got to go to the washroom, there's, like, there's a hole in the ground and a shed uh, on top of it. And if you close that door, it's pretty dark in there, especially around dusk or uh, around dawn when the sun's going down. And I remember this one time, you know, uh, it's doing my thing. And um, I was inside. It's kind of pitch black inside. And I heard these noises around me that I'm just not familiar with. So I start freaking out. It's like pitch black in there. And I'm like, oh, okay, I just got to get out of here. And I get out. And I asked the native, I'm like, oh, what were those noises in the outhouse? Uh, and they said, oh, those are the bats in the hole that are just circulating downstairs. And I was like, what are you talking about? You know, I'm freaking out. Uh, this is the freak out that's kind of happening here. Like, just that tone. Like, they don't know what's happening. And when they find out, it's just they're tearing their robes. They don't know how else to communicate. Um, and so in light of the worldview that they see unfolding in front of them, Paul begins to challenge their actions uh, with the gospel. Look with me here at uh, verse 15. Oh, this is a picture. Oh, I missed that. Sorry. Verse 15. Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. Paul sees what they're doing, and he begins to challenge their worldview that the gods that they worship, the gods that they're trying to please right now by sacrificing, Paul says that they're worthless. They're worthless that they are vain, that they are empty, they have no power. And so Paul says, turn from them, repent from them, and turn to a living God who has power, who has created everything that you see in front of you. This was such a bold move on Paul's part to call their gods vain things and, or worthless idols. It was such a deep challenge 
to their worldview. Everyone at that time in the Greco-Roman culture believed in multiple gods. So a challenge to believe in just one god would have been a little shocking, even offensive to, to hearing those words. Jerem Bars, uh, one of my professors from Covenant, he wrote this book called The Heart of Evangelism, and he said this, The gospel will always be experienced as a challenge. It will challenge the mind, for it confronts false belief with the truth. It will challenge the will, for it cuts to the core of our insistence on turning away from God and going our own way. It will challenge the heart, for our hearts are devoted to many masters in place of the one true God. Any faithful communication of the gospel must come with this challenge. In fact, it is appropriate to assert that there, if there is no challenge, there is no genuine presentation of the gospel. Challenging the worldview of unbelievers is vital, is vital when we present the gospel. But notice here, for Paul, um, his challenge was a response to their actions. He didn't assume the extent of their idolatry and just start preaching the gospel to them. He responds to what unfolded in front of him, and then he speaks the gospel in a way that challenged them, but also in a way that they would understand. You know, unlike the Jewish audiences that Paul and Barnabas were preaching to prior, um, these people have no Jewish backgrounds, these Lystrans. They have no Jewish backgrounds. So earlier, Paul would talk to them through the scriptures, trying to recite uh, the scriptures to help them understand what the gospel is and who Jesus is as a fulfillment of scripture. These guys have no clue what that is. So he speaks in a language that is such a different approach to how he spoke to the, uh, to the Jews. Look with me here in verse 16. He says, In past generations he allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food, with food and gladness. These farmers didn't know the Old Testament. So there was no reason for Paul to quote scripture for them. Instead, he speaks about God's general revelation, making the case that the living God is the one that has given them rain and food and ultimately joy in their lives. But what's interesting about this presentation of the gospel is that Paul doesn't mention Jesus or the cross throughout this whole you know, through his time speaking, at least what Luke records here. Now, the point is not that it's okay to leave out Jesus and, and the cross when we preach the gospel to someone, but rather it's important to know who you're talking to. And we need to meet people where they are when we challenge their worldview. These Lystrans do nothing about believing in just one God. Their worldview, they believed in a plethora of gods. So Paul had to start from the ground up before he proclaimed Christ and the cross. To faithfully preach the gospel, we must challenge the worldview of unbelievers, but we must discern where they are and speak in a way where they can understand our message. You know, when it comes to preaching the gospel to others, I think we as Christians can either be two things. One, we're either too anxious to share the gospel or we're too passive to preach the gospel to them. I think it's often, you know, when we are 
too anxious to preach the gospel, you know, we just, you just want to, you do it where you just want to get it out there, right? You just, you got to say it. This is where, like, we're cold witnessing, oh, you, you hear that phrase where people just walk to a stranger on the street and share the gospel with them. I would say that, you know, it's, you know, not that, to, you know, I do believe in divine appointments. I do believe that God can, you know, lead you to someone where you can share the gospel. But I think in our day, in, especially in America, um, cold witnessing can be ineffective, can uh, be ineffective. And, and I would say it's because when we just share the gospel and just have to get it out there, we fail to hear where people are. We just have a message for them. We just got to say it. I did my job in evangelizing. Walk away. But in doing that, we fail to hear where people are or we fail to allow their worldview to unfold before sharing a gospel that speaks into them personally. Um, I think that's one thing. But also, we can also be too passive to challenge people with the gospel. And I think this is where most of us might fall under. We actually do hear and know exactly how people view life. Uh, We understand their worldview quite well. You think about it. I think for most people, uh, they just live to be happy. So people I talk to all the time in the city, you're just doing whatever, you know, just doing whatever, do, making all our life choices because it's just whatever it takes to be happy, I'm just going to make my choices around that. But, as, but often when we know that about people, I think we fail to challenge their perspective with the gospel, that what they find happiness in isn't true happiness. And we fail to probe deeper to invite them to answer questions that point to their need for, for Christ. Questions like, what if that was taken away from you? Uh, then what would you do? Life is so uncertain, you know, with all that's going on with you. How, how, do, how do you handle that? How do you handle the uncertainty of life? We need to be good listeners as Christians so that as we understand their worldview, we can discern where people are and speak in a meaningful way the gospel as it applies to them, as it applies to them. To faithfully preach the gospel, we must preach the gospel wherever God has placed us. We must challenge the worldview of unbelievers. And lastly, we must embrace the risks involved when we preach the gospel. We must embrace the risks involved when we preach the gospel. After Paul and Barnabas... Uh, preach the gospel here in, um, in Iconium. We, we read this starting at verse 4. It says, But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derb, cities of Lyconia and to the surrounding country. Later in Lystra, after they preached the gospel there, we read in verse 19, But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. These Jews from Antioch and Iconium were utterly offended by the message of the gospel. And so they followed Paul all the way to Lystra. That's around 110 miles, finding out where he went, just because they were so offended by this message that he preached. And they stoned him for preaching this gospel. When we faithfully preach the gospel, Scripture is very clear. 
that we put ourselves at risk. We put ourselves at risk. Paul reminds the believers later in verse 22 that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And this is a reference to what Jesus actually said in Matthew 9, or Matthew 24, verses 9 through 13, where he says this, And then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When we preach the gospel, there is a risk of being threatened, of suffering, of being hated. But I believe even here in scripture it says that we must embrace the risk that is involved. I think if there's one thing that we as Christians don't like doing, it's taking risks. And maybe just not even as Christians, but just as people in general. We don't like taking risks, do we? Um, Maybe there are some of you out there that are big risk takers uh, because maybe you just like the fact that there could be a big payoff in the end. You know, if I invest here, you know, you know, if this happens, like, boom, you know, life will be much better. We like taking that risk. But I think for your average person, and I consider myself that average person, we try to live life as risk-free as possible, don't we? Um, we like to be exact. We like to plan. We like to calculate and make sure that things will be okay. Uh, we're like that with money, right? Uh, the stock market, I don't know about that. That's, that's too crazy. Uh, but mutual funds, oh, that's safe, you know. Um, we try to do that with our families, to calculate and control what will happen, control where we live, make sure that we're in a safe neighborhood. The public schools, we don't know what will happen if we put our kids in the public schools, uh, what they're going to learn. So we send them to private schools to, in one sense, control the outcome. Why stir the pot? Why put ourselves in a position where things could go wrong, right? That's kind of where our overarching mentality can be. In general, for your average person, we don't like to take risks. We don't like to take risks. But as people called to preach the gospel, risk is something that we must embrace. We must embrace that. The gospel is meant to be an offensive message. It's meant to be an offensive message because at the heart of it, it says, you are a sinner. You have offended God and you need someone to save you from God's judgment. I know many of us, we don't like to put ourselves in that position, Uh, but if we believe in Jesus and we believe that the gospel is true, And that there is no other name under heaven given to men through which we must be saved. If we care for the eternity of people, we must embrace the risks involved when we preach the gospel. In our country, in bigger cities like San Francisco and here in Chicago, if we preach the gospel to someone um, and share it in a loving manner, even in a way that they understand. At the very worst, 
at the very worst, is the risk of offending them with the truth or being called a fool or, and just them rejecting the message. That's at its worst. I, I was trying to just think about that. Like, what's the worst thing that could happen that they think I'm a fool? Um, that's, that's at its worst. But is rejection or being called a fool too much for us to bear? Randy Alcorn, he said this. If we seek our culture's approval, we'll never get it or get it only at the expense of failing to represent Christ. We are promised that if we live godly lives in Christ Jesus, we will suffer persecution. If we're not suffering persecution at some level, then what does that suggest? We should certainly be nice, and it's sad when Christians aren't. But it's also sad when we imagine niceness has greater impact than it really does. Niceness is not the gospel. Our good example is important, but it's not sufficient. There are actual truths that must be grappled with in surrendering to Jesus. And these truths are expressed in words. I like what Randy Alcorn had to say here. Being nice is good, but it's never enough. It's never enough. Their eternity rests on how they interact with the truth of this gospel. And we are called to bring this gospel to them, to communicate this message of the truth in Jesus Christ and the cross. I think the problem is that we fail to put ourselves in these positions where we risk our reputation because if we're honest with ourselves, eternity, it isn't our reality. It isn't our reality. I think for many of us, even as Christians, Life here, right now, is what we tend to be living for, right? We're living for our career. We're living to make ends meet. We're living to contribute to the world in a meaningful way, but in a worldly sense, right? That was not the case with the Apostle Paul. He longed for the life after this one. He longed to be with Christ. Look with me here, even in Philippians 1, verses 21 through 23. He says, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet, which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Paul had eternity on his mind. He wanted to be with Jesus. But eternity also caused him to labor for Christ on this earth. And so he embraced all the risks that were involved to preach the gospel so that others would know that, would know that there is eternal life in Christ. When eternity is our reality... When eternity is our reality, we will care about the eternity of other people. And so we embrace the risks because their eternity rests on this gospel that we are called to bring to them. Now, that doesn't mean that we become offensive people, okay? It's the message of the gospel that offends, not us. It's the message that offends not us. We need to share the gospel with 
respect, with gentleness uh, and love, not with arrogance that we have it right and they have it wrong. But nonetheless, the gospel message is something that we must communicate. Maybe you aren't good at articulating the gospel, and I think that's okay. I think sometimes it's great to refer people to a book. You have a conversation with them, and you refer them to a book. I always refer people to two books. I like my go-to books. One is Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. I always, if they're, we have a good conversation, oh, you know, you know, and, you know, we, I was like, oh, you know, he's a book reader, and I find out, I'm like, oh, maybe you should check this book out. Let's talk about it afterwards. Um, or uh, Jesus Among Other Gods by Ravi Zacharias. Such a great book in terms of having unbelievers just, like, just to read and interact with the truth of Scripture. And, you know, just these people with uh, C.S. Lewis and Ravi Zacharias, they're so great at articulating life uh, and, and connecting people to understand the fabric of life and why Jesus is needed. Um, but I would say that even then, we, we can't just rely on books. We ourselves need to be equipped on how to evangelize, how to evangelize. There, and there are great books out there. There are two that I've been recommending these days. One is uh, Evangelism by J.D. Payne. He actually goes through a whole series of questions of what people tend to ask as you're evangelizing. And uh, he goes through a very good biblical understanding of how to, how to respond to them. And another one is a book that I've read, too, called Learning Evangelism from Jesus by Jerem Bars. I think these are both great resources because just in ways that we need to be equipped, we need to be equipped to be able to share the gospel. But nonetheless, even when we are equipped, that still may mean rejection. That still may mean being hated or even physical suffering like Paul because people associate the message with the messenger. They do. That's just the way we are as people. But we need to remember that if that were to happen, if that were to happen, God will strengthen us during those times. He will strengthen us during those times. Look with me to verse uh, 19 and 20. They stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, He rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derb. You know, Luke doesn't give us the details, but all scholars are in agreement that Paul's ability to get up the next day after he was supposedly dead was nothing short of a miracle. It was nothing short of a miracle. I mean, he was, can you just imagine, Paul was just stoned. He was just stoned, and he's, he's all bloody. He's barely able to move. And, but somehow, he manages to recover in one day and continue his missionary journey to preach the gospel the next day. How is that even possible? And so this brief statement that Luke writes here, that the disciples gathered about him, there's no doubt that they prayed for God's healing upon him right then and there, right then and there at that moment. And God strengthens him. And miraculously, he does it so that Paul is able to continue preaching the gospel wherever he goes. When we suffer for preaching the gospel, the Lord will strengthen his people. He will strengthen us. He will strengthen us. 
You know, one of the people that were brought to mind when I was reflecting upon this was, um, you know, a man, a brother that I think all of us know or are familiar with is a man named Kenneth Bay. In the past, our brother Eric Sohn had shared about him, uh, just one of the people that we're supporting. He's a Korean missionary, if you don't know him, and he was arrested for preaching the gospel in North Korea. And I don't know what you know about North Korea, uh, but it is considered to be one of the darkest if not the darkest country uh, in the world. And by darkest, I mean we just, for many, you know, for the outsiders, we don't know what's going on in there just due to the high security, just how much they control uh, media. And uh, just uh, it's so hard to even get into that country uh, just as a visitor. But in 2012, Kenneth Bay was arrested, and he was sentenced for 15 years in the intensive labor camp. And... These labor camps are known for how they starve and torture people in there. But for reasons not yet disclosed, the U.S. was able to get him released uh, this, past, uh, this past winter in November of 2014, last year. And the details have yet to be shared. And he himself is in the midst of writing a book about his experience. And I'm looking forward to reading that when it comes out. But in a rare conversation he had with a journalist... He shared about his experience, and he said it was just a very brief statement that he shared with him. Often I looked in the mirror in my prison cell and said to myself, I'm a missionary. God, I was sent by God to be here. I am here to represent his kingdom and to be a light in this land. Do not forget. Do not be discouraged. You are here for a reason. I'm not sure what Kenneth Bay was suffering through that time. And we'll soon know once his literature comes out, but he, he preached the gospel in a place where, you know, it's, where it's disallowed, where you're not allowed to proselytize. But because his trust was in the Lord, that gave him strength to not be discouraged and to keep going. It's one of these things that we learn from people like Paul, people like Kenneth Bay is that when you think about their lives, you realize that Christ's worth is reflected in their willingness to take a risk with the gospel. His worth is reflected in our willingness to take risks with the gospel. When we're faithful to preach the gospel, you know, we we need to be faithful to Preach where he, where he places us, where he leads us. We need to challenge the worldview of unbelievers when we have the opportunity. But also when we preach this gospel, we must embrace the risks involved. And as we do that, as we do that, we are continuing to carry out God's mission that he has called all of us to be on. He has entrusted all of us with this gospel. And he's asked us to be faithful with it. Be faithful with the gospel that he's entrusted us with. But that means for all of us who are his witnesses is that we have to preach it. We have to preach it. We have to share it with this world. Let's be faithful, brothers and sisters, to preach this gospel that God has entrusted to us. Amen? We're called to preach it, so let's be faithful to that call. Let's pray to the Lord.
we can just take a moment before we close just to respond a little in prayer and as we close in a song. How have you handled the gospel in your life that God has entrusted to you? The saving message of Jesus that has given you life, has given you hope. Is the gospel you have just a gospel of niceness? Just trying to be a light in the sense of being nice, reflect Christ's character. And those things are good. But God has called us to preach it, proclaim it. Will you pray to the Lord with me, asking for the Lord's grace, asking him to make our eternity our reality. Lord, help me. Help me know that this life is just temporary. Eternity is with you. So help me to live each and every day for eternity and the things and for treasures in heaven, knowing that those things will not perish. Ask the Lord for his grace to do that so that we can embrace the risk. We can preach the gospel, share it to those people that he has placed in our lives. Let's pray for his grace and respond in a word of prayer. Thank you.